This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Derek Goldman, who is the co-author and director of Remember This, The Lesson of Jan Karski. It's a one-person show starring David Strathairn, and it plays at Berkeley Rep's Pete's Theater December 2nd through December 18th of this year. Derek Goldman is the artistic director of the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics at Georgetown University, also the co-founder, a professor of theater and performance studies at Georgetown, author of more than 30 professionally produced plays, and has directed over 90 productions. So let's start by going back to the origins of Remember This. Did this come from Clark Young? Did the two of you start working together? How did that work? It actually came quite organically. It's great to be here, by the way, and, and to be talking with you. It came quite organically because Karski had been a beloved professor for many years at Georgetown, where I had been teaching for some time. He passed away in 2000, but he was a professor there from 1952 to 1992, so had a, a deep history. And in 2014, his centennial celebration was being celebrated on campus. I had a pretty deep background with performances that engage with not only World War II and the Holocaust, but more broadly with issues of politics and human rights. And so I was reached out to to put something together for that occasion. And I was a natural person to ask. I had done a lot of work in Poland. And so they reached out to me. I think the thinking at the time was it would be some readings and some dramatic material that could be shared. I knew the outlines of Karski's story and life, but I'll share more about who he was. But I immediately thought of David, who I had worked with previously through the great Pulitzer Prize winning oral historian and radio personality Studs Terkel, who he and I shared a love for and a relationship with. So we had become friends. I reached out to him with just a kind of sense that there was a strong connection between him and the particular kind of humility and dignity that Karski represented. And quite remarkably, David remembered Karski from his appearance in Claude Landsman's documentary Shoah, which David had seen 30 years earlier, but his testimony in that film was seared in David's memory. So David sort of right away said, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> um, and we were underway. And then Clark Young, who you referenced, was a former student of mine and by then a professional collaborator. And he was the other person I reached out to at the beginning, just because I knew this was a really powerful and incredibly complex story. And we didn't have a lot of time for that first version. So I knew we needed to do some really intensive research. And so the three of us, Clark, David, and I have really been the core team from the beginning. He was in Shoah. He was also in something called the Karski Report, which was a documentary. And apparently you guys also used his memoir and a 1994 biography. Did you go searching for other people who knew him to just get a sense? Did David do that to get a sense of who he was? The great thing about this is we had all of that great material and it really was a, a treasure trove of material we didn't have to go searching because there they were on our campus. So many people who had been former students and former colleagues of his, he was still and is still very, very much in the expansive community of people who 
who loved and were influenced by him over those four decades of his teaching. That community has been an incredible resource for us. Karski was a, as your listeners may or may not know, was was a Polish Catholic member of the Polish underground who was a witness to the Holocaust. He was invited in to the Warsaw Ghetto and eventually to a transit camp to see what was happening and then reported in London, tried to report to Churchill, was unable to, but went to London and was a member of the government in exile, and then went to the U.S. and reported ultimately to, to Roosevelt. So he had this incredible story of what he had seen, and he did not tell his story for 35 years. He was silent. And what we see in the documentary clip from Landsman Shoah is him breaking down as he first begins for the first time in 35 years to tell that story. And the reason I share that now, since you're asking about who knew him, is that there were several generations of students who had no idea what his story was, even though he was an incredibly inspiring professor teaching about European politics and the war, he didn't uh, share his biography. And it was only the later students who had him after Shoah was released in 1985 who were aware of that part of his history. So one of the things that's been incredible about sharing the play is different generations of Karski's former students connecting with each other <laughs> through the memory of Karski and through David's portrayal. I wonder if he was part of the research that Spielberg did for Schindler's List. He features somewhat in Ken Burns' recent PBS documentary. He's certainly a figure who people who are expansive Holocaust scholars have come across. And he is, as we've learned, probably better known in Poland than he is in the United States. But he, it, it is something of a part of, for us, the privilege of telling this story is it is a little bit of a hidden history. It's a story that too few people know, and that's a very distinct and specific story that is ultimately a story we see as very much, it's not so much a history play for us, but a current events play. It's very much for us about Karski's message about bearing witness, about individual responsibility, about the importance of the truth in a climate of denial and disinformation, lots of lessons <laughs> that we feel are incredibly, incredibly timely for the current moment. Derek Goldman, once the three of you and David didn't take credit for the for the script, but had much to do with it, once you began working on it, how did the collaboration come together into one play? Yeah, the play has had a really interesting journey in that initially it was imagined as an ensemble piece. David has always been, he's the only actor who's played Karski as part of this production. But initially it was David in that first iteration at Georgetown University, it was David with an ensemble of Georgetown students. And the conceit was that the sort of framing device was that students were passing by the commemorative bench on Georgetown's campus that that honors Karski, much as Clark Young, one of the co-writers, and many of my own students had done without ever interrogating who he was, without knowing who, who it was a statue of, that eventually one stops to interrogate it. And then the sort of framing device was questions that students were asking of Karski. And eventually it kind of turns into a memory play where the story of Karski's life gets told and the students play different roles. And that version had its merits. We didn't abandon it because it wasn't working. But, but we had uh, the opportunity to go to 
Poland with that early version as a workshop. And we're working with these incredible Polish students who were really incredible physical actors and who brought things to the Karski story that were, of course, different because they had learned about him growing up. And in that context, David, he started to engage physically with the role in much the same way that the students were. So it was not just, you know, the David I had seen on screen, you know, his whole body was involved. And it was that really kind of cracked open for us the possibility. I started to see that the play that David could live the role of Karski and not just reflect back on it. And so out of that, we made the decision ultimately to turn it into a one-person show where David plays all of those roles and where the audience, in essence, become his, if you will, students, not in a didactic way, but as witnesses to the kind of transformative space that the classroom is. So we really see David as becoming the young Karski, even as he's looking back as the older Karski. And so it took a while to get to that version. And then we premiered it right before COVID. So just when it was starting to hit hit and be received and have lots of opportunities and, and, and invitations, we of course had a long wait before we were able to do it live. But our process, each of those iterations has been Clark, David, and I, and eventually a really beautiful creative team and design team just really trying to, to, to distill and make, be as, tr- as deeply faithful to Karski's incredible life and the messages that we think that, that seem to resonate most deeply in the current moment. So a lot of it was about paring down and simplifying and trusting the audience to just kind of go on this journey with us. David Strathairn has created a very physical yes. look at Karski, jumping on the table, on moving around a lot. Was that coming from him, from all of you? How was that determined? Well, it was enabled by the fact that he's an, an incredibly adept physical actor. So that's kind of the discovery, as I mentioned, that we made in Poland for it just just what the possibilities of that were. It just came through looking at the reality of the moments that Karski was remembering and what his body had been through. You know, Karski was beaten, was tortured within an inch of his life. He jokes that I am no James Bond, but he does jump off of a train. And there's there's a lot of action in the life of Karski as it was lived and experienced. And we were all excited about the form we were able to find. And we had an incredible movement director, Emma Jaster, my longtime collaborator, who was able, I think, to help us and help David translate that into a kind of expressive style that made sense. There's nothing there's nothing flowery or abstract or, or arty about the piece, but we wanted to, the movement to have a stylistic purpose. And the other thing that was significant is that Karski's, you know, wife later in his life, Pola Norenska, was a really important and prominent choreographer who engaged with her own history as a Polish Jewish Holocaust survivor whose entire family was was killed through movement and through dance. So we were also somewhat inspired by Pola's choreography, Emma was in particular, in some of the movement choices. So we found a form for the physical life of the piece. I just think it makes for good theater. David's just amazing in what he, the the stamina, it makes it visceral in a way that someone just telling you a story with words at, that are not embodied as fully, uh, I don't think it would have 
for us the same power. So it, it gave it some, I think, some muscle that the play needed. Because of the physicality, uh, a number of critics have noted that the performance is fairly restrained, that it doesn't go over the top, that the story itself lets the audience go over the top. And I guess that was deliberate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think being true to Karski meant there was an incredible elegance about Karski and an incredible reserve in a certain way. He was a very charismatic figure, but part of why David seemed so right for the role was a kind of enormous restraint, respect for the audience that felt right. And so we tried to make sure that the piece invites the audience to have a communal experience. I think the other thing with material like this, because it is engaging with testimony from highly traumatic experiences that Karski had and witnessed, is that there's a natural, I think, defense that goes up for some audience members with material like this. And I think we really wanted to invite the audience to kind of come into a trusted experience. And I think one of the most gratifying things for us has been that many, many Holocaust survivors and children of Holocaust survivors who've um, seen the piece have said to us that this kind of material they normally tend to avoid, but something about how David enacts Karski, who Karski was, the approach of the piece is allowing them to feel that it's a space in which they can really go back. And so many of them have come back several times, have brought back family members with whom maybe they have struggled to talk about these issues as a way of kind of collectively bearing witness to things that in many cases, others, if they didn't live directly what Karski saw, they have family members who did, and it's part of their own their own family history. I do think it's an understated performance, but David's work is incredibly detailed, incredibly precise, incredibly rich. It's just very finely honed. One of the lines that, insofar as I know, comes up multiple times is that he talks about himself as a tape recorder at one point and later on as a camera. Yes. In terms of telling the story, on some level, you are presenting this as witness rather than actor in the events. And messenger, I think, is also a key word. He saw his duty, his job as as a messenger, which in fact was what he was, the work he was doing in the places where he bore witness to the most horrific things that he was entrusted with then reporting. His job was not to have opinions or to, you know, try to influence policy through his own point of view, it was to report. It was to see and to report. And he had a great memory, which was much commented on. And he kind of insisted on that that sense of of being a tape recorder. And it becomes, I think, one of the the kind of tensions in the piece and 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 I think in Karski's life. There's a section in a later part of the play where he is bearing witness to things that are really having a huge emotional impact on him, and he's trying to suppress them. He's saying, look, no feelings, look. He's really, you know, almost calling upon his vocation as a tape recorder, as a messenger, as a witness to keep him 
from having what he then acknowledges is the sort of essential human response of empathy, because without, if he lets himself really let take in what's going on, there's a kind of madness that comes with absorbing the scale of the loss of humanity and the deprivation that he bore witness to. He went to these places and they didn't believe him or they ignored him. Which was it? Different reports led to different responses. And and I think part of what the play tries to do is really allow the audience to kind of think about the spectrum of responses. And it's, it's, it's complicated. And again, Ken Burns' documentary takes up some of the political complexity of this. But clearly, Felix Frankfurter, the Jewish Associate Justice of the Supreme Court to whom he reports, says, and it's one of the most kind of commented on sections, he makes a distinction. He says, I'm not saying you are lying, but I'm saying I, I don't believe you. There's a difference. And to the implication is that his that he, you know he can't accept his mind, his heart is made in such a way as a man of humanity, of justice, that this could be possible. So that's one type of response. But it is in the end, it is a denial. It is I'm not le- I'm not absor- I'm not able to absorb this. I'm not letting it in. I choose not to. The meeting with Roosevelt also ends very unsatisfactorily for Karski, and he. You know, he told that story often, very precisely. He was very precise about what was exchanged between them. Of course, there was a lot going on in the country. And and at the time, we in the play tried to do what Karski did, which is just report the conversation and not editorialize or point fingers. But Karski left Roosevelt's office without any sense that the message that he was sharing with him had fully gotten through. You know, he also tried to report to Churchill and was kind of fended off, staved off by British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden. And as Karski reports very directly, Churchill later in 1946 is quoted as saying that he had no idea of the scale of the atrocities that had been happening, that it dawned on him gradually after the war was over. That's the quote from Churchill. And I think Karski felt so haunted by the fact that had he just been granted that meeting, there would be no way that Churchill would have been able to say he had no idea of the scale of the atrocities. You know, he he was carrying that information and trying to get into Churchill to see it. And now today we have a return of some kind of Holocaust denial, uh, obviously fueled by the anti-Semitism of the Donald Trump cult. What gets me is a few years ago, I was in Cambodia and went to the area of where the killing fields were and realized that one thing about the Holocaust, which a lot of these deniers and people who question it as Churchill did or as Frankfurter did, it's happened more than once. This is not an outlier. What happened in Cambodia happened in Germany and it could happen again. And that's why people don't quite get the Cambodia example is really close to my heart because we actually teach a course at Georgetown that travels to Cambodia with students. It's a course in politics and performance, and it looks specifically at the role of the arts in post-conflict settings. So, so we go there, and we so it's just an interesting connection because in that context, we've actually thought quite a lot about where there are and where there aren't direct parallels between the example of Cambodia and and the Holocaust. 
But I think, you know, the point you make is important that, and this is part of, for us, our motivation in bringing this story to the world and David's motivation. I can say that this is a piece that takes its toll on David. It's a physically and mentally exhausting piece. And he isn't doing it for cash or glory. He's doing it because he really, really believes that Karski's story has something urgent to offer in today's moment. And I think it's because we see, again, so many signs that are and should be ominously familiar to us. You know, I don't personally subscribe to the rhetoric of like, oh, we're back in 19, you know, whatever year in the late 1930s. Isn't that helpful? Because so much, I think things are different, you know, like the climate of social media changes so radically how hate works and where it, where it affects people, where young, where it affects young people. And I think a huge part of our motivation for this piece is about young people who don't have a, in many cases, don't have Holocaust education at all and and don't maybe have examples like Karski to grapple with as they think about the kinds of decisions they're going to make, which are in some ways really come down to messages that sort of that are very central for Karski are just about not making distinctions, not judging others, not rushing to judgment. You know, things that can seem quite simple, but it doesn't take a lot to look around the world and see how polarized, how broken, how much hate, how much misunderstanding there is, and to be deeply concerned about that. And uh, we are very gratified that that people are responding to Karski's example as as passionately as they are. Sadly, it's partly because it feels so urgent and so applicable to the moment we're all in. The other thing is that that whole generation is dying. Yes. The people who witnessed it directly. My late stepfather was in one of the troops that liberated the camps. And throughout the rest of his life, I knew it was there. He never talked about it. He couldn't talk about it. Right because it was just too painful, that first impression, I guess, of seeing the people on the other side of the barbed wire and freeing them. And I think part of the problem is that as it recedes in history, it becomes less real. Exactly. I mean, that silence that you're describing from your own family is a huge part of what I think this piece and Karski's story is about. Karski himself for all of his incredible deeds, considered himself an insignificant little man, an insignificant little man is sort of the quote that he often said, you know, stayed silent for 35 years, which was, was so common, you know, like with that experience of silence, part of what this play is inviting and urging people to do, if we're silent about what about whatever it is that we're bearing witness to, then there's no possibility for forward movement to kind of absorb those realities. So I think it's really a piece against complacency, against the sort of overwhelmed feeling we can have that like there's nothing we can do. Karski really insisted on individuals have souls and have capacity to make a difference in ways that governments often don't and institutions don't, but individual citizens can. And I think we can take that message very generically, but I think this play and Karski's story gives us some very vivid examples of it that particularly we hope 
not just younger audience members, but audience members who are, you know, make may come in as many of us do, just feeling so cynical and concerned about the world. And um, it's not facile, easy hope that the play gives us, but it gives us the hope that comes with truth. Like this is a play that insists, uh, as you say, it becomes, and as Karski said, it becomes a myth. It becomes abstract for people. And that it's once it, it can be turned into an abstraction, it can be denied. It can be turned away. So we need to look at the fact that some things are <laughs> empirically true and actually happened and continue to take responsibility for grappling with those. Yeah, I'm going to change the subject, but I, as you're speaking now, I haven't been to Germany other than to take a train ride through when I was hmm. right out of college. A part of me just cringes at going there at this point, given what they've become, but it's still hard for me. But when I was in Cambodia uh, and Siem Reap, there's a tiny little exhibit, not exhibit, it's kind of a memorial area that no one really goes to. And so the afternoon after I went to uh, Angkor Wat, I took a tuk-tuk over there and I just looked at these skulls sitting in, oh, I yeah. guess, a memorial thing. Yeah, I've and been, We've been there. We go with our students. I know the place very well. Yeah, That I can't get out of my head because I was sure. there. I saw it. You yeah, know. yeah, exactly. Before we move on to a little bit about your own career, remember this has also become a film. Now, was that film during the pandemic then? It was, you know, it was kind of a, I guess we'd call it a happy accident of the pandemic. The play was just starting to make its rounds. It premiered as part of the School of Foreign Service Centennial Celebration at Georgetown at the end of 2019. It then went to London for a sort of single special performance, part of the commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz in January 2020, to great response. And the play was then invited to a number of leading theaters. It was invited to, to Edinburgh and Spoleto and a range of places. And then, of course, COVID hit and all plans were out the window and we had uh, no idea when or whether the live production would be able to happen. But this woman, Eva Anisko, who's a Polish-American and uh, had been an award-winning documentary film producer and a Georgetown alum, had been at the performance in London we had met afterwards. She'd ex she'd asked about whether we were interested in doing something on film, and we sort of said it would be great to talk about. So when COVID hit, we reconnected because we wanted to explore some way of keeping the project moving. And she really, quite remarkably, given you know what was going on at the time, was able to pull together a team, including a really amazing collaborator who I co-directed the film with, Jeff Hutchins, who's a remarkable, had been a remarkable director of photography and was the director of photography on the film. And we shot the film in a studio in, in six days in the summer of 2020. So if it weren't for COVID, I'm really pretty certain this film would not exist. We might have later circled around to doing like a film capture or something, but this the circumstances kind of forced actually a kind of creative approach. Jeff had a vision about the way black and white would be used and it's beautifully shot and it's not synonymous with the experience of seeing the play by any means, but we're very gratified that we have this complementary piece that of course our, our greatest hopes are can get to parts of the country and parts of the world and to audiences that will 
you know, theater is very ephemeral and David can only do this so many times in so many places. So the film will allow far more people to see his work as Karski and to take in Karski's message than, than we can do with the play. But I also feel that there's nothing like seeing David do this live. And we're really so honored to be returning, you know, to by returning, I mean, because David is, you know, from the Bay Area and sort of kind of a home game for him. And it was a real priority for us to be able to get it there. We know there will only be so many more chances for the live performance to happen. The film, we talked off the air beforehand, the film is supposed to show up at some point on great performances. It has been shown at several film festivals to excellent reviews. Derek Goldman, let's go to you yourself. I looked up your biography and all of the material I found is just a list of things. So where did you grow up and how did you become interested in theater? I grew up in Boston, Boston and Brookline, Massachusetts. It's interesting because I was just back there last week because the film was showing at the Boston Jewish Film Festival at the Museum of Fine Arts. So it was an interesting moment to be back among many of the people, friends from high school, family members I hadn't seen in decades who had been kind of part of those early days and to be sort of sharing this work. I got very lucky. I became interested in theater because... I was at Brookline High School and a really brilliant mentor, teacher, a man named Ian Ryrie, who died too young, founded something called the Brookline Educational Theater Company that I became part of as a high school student. And the concept of that was that students collaborated with adult members of the community to create original shows about issues going on in the world. And so I very early on got exposed to the idea that theater wasn't only Broadway musicals that you could audition for in high school, but was, you know, any of so many other kinds of ways of thinking about story. And uh, that led me to Northwestern, where I did undergraduate and graduate work and had a theater company in Chicago and and eventually really became very passionate about theater as, as a global art form and the different ways theater works around the world to humanize, as as we say, for the mission of the lab that I founded at Georgetown, the Lab for Global Performance and Politics. We, The mission is to humanize global politics through the powers of performance. And a lot of what we do is not you know, invent that. There are incredible artists working around the world who use theater and the arts to do that. A lot of our role, I think, is to amplify and make visible that work and to bring them, a lot of them are working in relative isolation. And so we try to create a community where, you know, global fellows who might be working in Zimbabwe, in Palestine, in Rwanda, in Vietnam, in different parts of the world have a chance to feel that there's a larger global community of artists that that can collaborate. In some ways, it's a straight line back to those experiences at at Brookline High School of just really seeing the power that that art carefully and well created can have on real issues because it goes to the heart. And and doing that in Washington, of course, um, has its own opportunities and its own privilege because of who we have access to and the people who are actually in, involved in, in you know, making policy decisions, et cetera. Derek Goldman, we all start somewhere. Over the years, I've spoken to a lot of playwrights and actors and directors and artistic directors, and there seems to be a pattern of going from acting to playwriting 
or acting to directing to artistic director doesn't sound as if you started with acting. It sounds like you started. No, I did. I did. I did. Probably like most others. I did, you know, I did a fair amount of acting in high school and college and maybe a little bit after that. But pretty early on, I got exposed to being part of making the work and, you know, shaping it. And I knew that even when I was acting, I knew that that part of my heart and that part of my brain was on. I just have such incredible appreciation for actors who like, you know, watching what David has done with this role and the way he owns it and the way he lives it and the way he keeps it fresh and what he goes through. And, you know, I just am in awe of it. I really truly am. But I knew that I wasn't wired to like eight times a week come and tell the same story myself in my own body, that I was sort of too restless a mind in a certain way. And I just fell in love with the possibilities of collaborating to be part of, you know, making work. And so really that led me to directing in particular. And then I I went to Northwestern where there was a great tradition of adapting work for the stage. So I'm, I am a playwright, but I've never been the kind of playwright who sits in a room and just thinks up characters out of whole cloth and can write great dialogue for them. I've always been interested in being inspired by material. It can be archival material. It can be conversations happening in a room, but I've needed something to, to kind of adapt work from. And I've you know done that with a lot of fiction and nonfiction and historical material and you know, every once in a while that calls for light writing a few lines of made up dialogue, but I tend to be drawn, you know, the, the Karski play is virtually all Karski's own words. We've done a lot of work to shape it, to create the audience experience, but it's not a work of invention in that way. Somewhere along the line, uh, along with finding yourself being able to create the laboratory once you finally got to Georgetown, uh, you became focused more on the Holocaust. And this really predates, remember this, how did that play into your growth as a teacher and your growth as an artistic director? I think that I had a lot of life experiences that drew me towards thinking about the role of theater in relationship to memory, loss, grief, trauma. I had a very close relative of mine uh, who was like a father to me, my uncle, who died of AIDS while I was an undergraduate at Northwestern. Many people were dying of AIDS. It was 1989, 90. But a group of us got together right after that and you know, before Angels in America and other iconic AIDS theater pieces and created a very personal and very political response to that experience, which struck a nerve and was invited to tour. And so very early on, I was exposed to, again, somewhat by accident, the fact that theater could kind of bear witness, could have that power that's both kind of personal and political. And that led to me being commissioned to create a new work about the Holocaust through an Anne Frank in the World Traveling Museum exhibit. They wanted a different version of the Anne Frank story that wasn't as naturalistic as the diary of Anne Frank. So I found myself creating that piece, a play called Right as Rain, and that then toured for three years. So for my first job out of college was running the theater company I founded, Street Science, and touring around with that play. 
And it was still 1992, 1993. So we were often put on programs with Holocaust survivors who would speak about their experience. And we had the opportunity to do it at you know, many, many schools and synagogues. I think that experience has stayed with me. I don't think of myself as particularly like a Holocaust-focused artist, but there have been a few projects over the years that have drawn on that history, but also projects that I've done, a play called Indar Fur about Sudan and a play called Unexplored Interior about Rwanda, um, the play Our Class, which is about Poland set during World War II, the other thing that's happened, this is kind of what happens in the theater, is people also then see you as someone who is a good person for that material. So sometimes it's not that I was trying to break out of it exactly, but it's, it's you know, you kind of end up in a working on certain kinds of things. I teach courses in comedy, and I've directed some comedies, and I believe comedy is as serious as all of those things. I get restless if I'm try- if I'm stuck in the same historical period or telling the same story for too long. So I've tried to cover a range of new things. One of the last questions I ask people in this in your field, particularly directors, theater directors, is what do they think about film or what do they think about long form television? But it seems to me that your focus remains live theater that that's what's most important to you. It's what I know best as a maker. I am a huge film buff, and I actually feel like part of what's been so exciting about having a film out in the world, but but having the opportunity to really collaborate on making a, a proper film, let's say. Artists steal, and I've always felt as a theater artist that I'm really stealing a lot from cinematic techniques. I've always, as the Karski play was, you know, it was very, very interested in kind of just, you know, it uses a lot of what I think would broadly be called kind of filmic techniques, close up and long shot, and just different kinds of, you know, to sort of achieve its style, which is part of what. Jeff and the team responded to and said this would make a great film is because it already had kind of cinematic bones. So for me, I see them as complementary art forms. Television is is where obviously a lot of the, the most exciting, innovative writers are going because it's where the work is. There's something that can only happen in a live theater. I do feel like there's something about the ancient ritual of coming together in a room and having live people in front of you tell a story and that everyone bears witness to it together. And for the most part, we've put away our phones and we're not, you know, distracted by all of that. And we're breathing together. That gets more and more radical to do because the world has changed away from that so much. So I think part of what even our play right now, remember this is actually drawing on is something very ancient in people that even coming out of the pandemic, as they come back into spaces to experience something profound, they realize that it's like, for some people, it really is like nourishment. It's like food to be able to have that communal experience. And that's part of why I think it's really special for us to like have a play that we believe in as deeply as we do this one. David talks about what he gets from the audience in this play as a transfusion every night. And that's the audience plays such a role in caring about this story and Karski. And that can only happen in that way in a live theater. Derek Goldman, one final question. What are you working on now beyond this? 
the Karski project is still very, very much ongoing for us because we're developing curriculum and we're getting the film out there. But we're I'm talking to you from Granada, Spain, where I'm here. I've had a long relationship with the great writer Federico Garcia Lorca, who was, of course, killed in 1936, but the great Spanish writer, and I'm returning to Lorca with a project about him and his relationship to, with the great Spanish composer Manuel de Falla that will be at the Kennedy Center through post-classical ensemble this spring. So I'm writing that or shaping that as we speak and uh, just had a beautiful day today in Granada in the archives, but also visiting the really haunted, tragic site where Lorca was murdered by Franco's regime and thinking a lot about the connection between that story and Karski, frankly, because Granada was also a place of denial. Lorca is now the favored son of this city. The airport is named after him. Everything is in his kind of memory and in his honor. But he was murdered and disposed of here in 1936, and they couldn't even acknowledge his death until 1939, even though it was in international newspapers. That's not very long ago. My father was alive, you know, and he's still alive. <laughs> For me, it's been a sort of another sign of like how we have to pay attention and notice what's happening in the world around us because there's a lot wrong out there and um, we have a small role to play but an important one I think as communities telling stories that bear witness to these kinds of things. You've been listening to an interview with Derek Goldman who is co-author and director of Remember This, The Lesson of Jan Karski which plays at Berkeley Rep's Pete's Theater December 2nd through 18th. And for more information, you can go to berkeleyrep.org. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>